Hello, and welcome to Cleantech Talk, Alacrity Canada's podcast series focusing on the cleantech sector. Today, we're talking to David Hunt, CEO of Hyperion Executive Search and host of the Leaders in Cleantech podcast. David Hunt is a cleantech expert and industry insider. Hailing from the United Kingdom, David spends much of his time presenting at industry events such as Eco Summit, Energy Storage Europe, Solar and Storage Live, and Fully Charged Live. David is also host of the Leaders in Cleantech podcast and is a frequent contributor to trade publications in the sector. His insights about clean technology have been quoted in UK media and newspapers such as The Guardian, The Independent, The Telegraph, and The Sunday Times. David's decade plus of experience, particularly in clean energy and e-mobility, enable him to speak with entrepreneurs, CEOs, thought leaders, and other industry insiders about the challenges, opportunities, highs, and lows of doing business in the clean tech sector through his podcast. Some of his time is dedicated to mentoring early stage clean tech companies through his work with Foresight Canada. David is CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search, a talent acquisition company that helps clean tech businesses find the talent they need to grow. So welcome, David, to our podcast. Thanks. Good to be here. So we'll start off with sort of a, a straightforward question. When did you start working in clean tech and, and how did that happen? It was a little bit of a random experience or, or coincidence how that came about, but it's back in 2007. So um, it actually came over a, a schoolyard fence with talking with a, a guy who became a business partner in our first solar business. Our daughters were in the same class at school, and we just got talking about wind turbines and solar panels. Uh, he was an electrical contractor, electrical engineer, and I knew nothing about it at the time, but uh, I was kind of bored with what I was doing. And went away and did some research into what was happening in the world of renewable energy, in particular solar and wind, and just saw an, a massive opportunity and it really opened my eyes just to how much could be done in a sustainable way. We all know how energy and, and the way that we live impacts on the environment even more so now. But even back then, that was apparent. So, um, yeah, it was a random conversation. I discovered that solar power existed and that it was feasible, uh, even though it was very expensive at the time. And I set up a solar business back in 2007. Oh, wow. It's interesting that you say that about like not even really realizing at the time what sorts of technologies existed. I just read an article recently about Canada's fight against climate change. And basically they were saying that all of the technologies that exist today are actually poised to make it possible for us to make a clean energy transition, that it's really about adoption and widespread use of those technologies. And it's interesting to think that back in 2007, that a lot of those technologies that we're still trying to um, propagate today were in existence then. Yeah, yeah. So now you've been in the clean tech space for quite a while and you've been in the business world for um, some time as well. We'd be curious to know how you think the clean tech sector compares with other sectors in terms of how businesses develop and grow. Like, are there patterns that you've noticed in the clean tech sector that align with other business sectors? And if not, sort of what do you think makes the clean tech sector unique? It's a good question. And I think there is an element of uniqueness. I mean, I've worked over years in other disruptive areas of technology, IT, many years ago uh, in the late 1990s, uh, telecoms around the 2000 mark, when there was huge disruption in terms of how we communicated, uh, both uh, primarily audially, but obviously visually. So those sectors went through massive changes, but they were kind of sectors of their own. I think one of the things around clean tech is that it's a it's a combination of many technologies which are coming to fruition, batteries, uh, solar power, 
grids, digitalization clearly is fundamental to a lot of what's going on and enabling much of what's going on. So mm-hmm. I think clean tech benefits because there's a lot of things happening in a lot of different subsectors and a lot of different areas. And because of that, I think it's the disruption is faster even than some of those high growth areas in the past. And I think that's one of the challenges really for policymakers who are not embedded in the technology areas is that things just move so quickly and technologies evolve so quickly. And I think it is a real challenge for people outside of the sector to appreciate that. Do you, do you think that there's something sort of inherently decentralized about the clean tech sector that also maybe makes it challenging for policymakers? Like if you compare it to other sectors that, that have a more defined scope of activities that fit into that sector, like you say, the clean tech sector is so diverse. Yeah, no, absolutely, 100%. And I think that's something which has always been, for me, as someone who likes to challenge the status quo, one of the drivers, uh, aside from the environmental benefits, is the fact that you have to push because I've had many conversations in the UK with government ministers around solar, and they were just so ideologically opposed to solar in particular because it's such an uh, egalitarian and, and uh, mm. democratic technology. <laughs> Anyone can participate within reason. And, and of course, you know, uh, again, they're still not without cost, but you see large parts of the developing world now benefiting hugely from being able to uh, engage in uh, renewable power. So I think that has been a factor that's worried both governments and, and at a policy level and also scared probably quite a lot of utility companies into putting uh, trying to put the brakes on things because, right. again, it's something they don't have that centralized control over. Yeah, interesting to consider sort of the ways in which just politics can meddle with progress that's actually necessary and necessary and possible. So we know that you've worked with Foresight Canada um, and you've worked with them as a mentor. Do you want to speak to just a little bit of the work that you've done with them? And then from there, I'd be curious to hear how you think the Canadian clean tech sector compares to what you've seen in the UK and other parts of the world. If you can draw any sort of clear um, conclusions around what's different in Canada and in other markets. Sure, yeah, and I'm happy to do so. So again, because of having been in the sector for some time and and, and been involved with uh, many companies at various stages of the growth, primarily startups and scale-ups and the VCs that fund them, I was first invited to be a mentor for Plug and Play, which is one of the big accelerators out of Silicon Valley, and then uh, another uh, green tech alliance in uh, in Europe. And uh, I'm not quite sure how I came across, or whether I approached or they approached me, but uh, I came across Foresight, um, primarily because I saw some really interesting things happening in BC in particular, and in Canada, uh, in storage, in, uh, in the broader sort of clean tech area. And um, I was invited to be a, a mentor and an executive residence and was, was happy to do so. And it, there is a lot of innovation, I think, coming out of Canada. There's a lot of really interesting businesses. I think if you try and draw some conclusions or differences, I think to some extent earlier on, maybe Canadian companies found it harder to get funding outside of the local market. I think that from what, what I'm seeing, that's changing. Like access to international financing. Yeah, yeah. I know now accelerators and VCs in in Europe who are actively engaged with Canadian uh, companies, not just US companies. Right. Yeah, so that's uh, certainly a play. I, I think from my experience, the Canadian companies are less internationally focused or or certainly less European focused. Mm. Um, Of course, there's a massive North American market on your doorstep with the US as well as Canada, of course. But we work with or I've worked with a lot of US companies, even quite small ones that have tried to address and and, and move into the European markets. Mm -hmm. 
far less so with the Canadian companies, um, which is interesting because European markets, particularly around energy and mobility, are quite a lot more advanced than the North American markets. And I think that's why younger companies see it as an opportunity to get some traction and to get some uh, some activities going. These studies are... Exactly, some some pilot projects. Uh, I know, uh, again, some of the big uh, breakthrough energy-backed US companies are doing projects in Europe because the, the opportunities there isn't that necessary there at home at the moment so i wouldn't say there's huge differences i think it's evolving but that's probably one thing i've, I've noticed is that, that i haven't seen or been involved in too many canadian companies who are looking to attack the european markets just yet i'm sure there are some and and, and I've, i know some who are expanding but yeah uh, that's not necessarily a bad thing by the way because internationalizing <laughs> too soon or too quickly can be a challenge for any startup yeah but um Given that the European markets are much more evolved, I say, particularly in and around the energy transitions uh, and uh, and mobility, um, there's certainly a lot of opportunity here that, um, uh, yeah, people could be tapping into. Yeah. But, but other than that, I think it's, they, they face the same struggles. How do you get the money? Uh, how do you get the support? Uh, and, and of course, how do you address a, a moving market? Yeah. Um, so those, those challenges are unique. Um, and it's great that obviously you have foresight and organizations like Alacrity who are supporting startups to, to sort of address and to, to grow and to expand because it's, it's vital. Yeah, it's an interesting point you make that you've seen a lot of Canadian clean tech companies uh, hesitate about actually crossing the Atlantic and going into more unfamiliar international markets. It's definitely something that we've observed among our portfolio companies. The Alacrity Clean Tech Program has 20 to 30 portfolio companies that we work with, and they're all clean tech mm-hmm. companies in different sectors. And yeah. Definitely. It's clear to see that a lot of those companies see the U.S. as kind of like a safe first step. Mm -hmm. It's also just a massive, it's a massive market and holds massive potential. And even though there are pretty significant differences, I mean, regulatory differences state to state, it's still sort of one cohesive market in a way and they speak English and we know them and culturally there are some similarities too. So it is a bit of a jump. I think for a lot of companies to get past that point of just thinking, yeah, let's deal with the U.S. and Canada and and uh, stay sort of safely there. Yeah, it is a huge magnet, and again, conversely, there's a lot of European companies who see the U.S. because of its scale uh, yeah. as, as a massive opportunity. Yes, it is, and we, we've worked with I've worked with a number of companies who've made that leap. Um, but equally, going back to my point, it, it, if you do, you can break your company if you try to do too much too soon, or if you mm-hmm. try to internationalize too quickly. So it's not necessarily a bad thing when you do have such a big market on your doorstep. Yeah. Um, but as I say, there are probably some big opportunities in Europe because of a more, more sort of uh, deregulated and more advanced energy network across uh, Europe and uh, so many more projects. Yeah. And certainly a lot of US companies, as I said, are, are taking advantage of that to build pilot projects or to build uh, proof of concepts. That made me think of one of the companies that we work with. They have smart home grow systems and hmm. they are interested in the European market, but they're conscious of GDPR regulations. And that's an interesting Mm -hmm. sort of additional dimension to entering into new markets, which is that if those markets, like you say, European markets are sometimes more developed in terms of adoption of clean technologies, or at least government prioritization of adopting those clean technologies, then that can pose a different sort of challenge because there might be actually more stringent regulations around how technologies can be used and how they can be adopted. And so then there's also a major opportunity in Canada to find the right people who have the right knowledge who can help those Canadian companies navigate things like GDPR and and different sorts of regulations. 
Yeah, it's interesting because as you've already touched on across the US, I mean, obviously state by state, there's massive differences in regulations and, and what kind of can't be done and what kind of policy support there is. So um, it's not that different. Uh, of course, Europe isn't homogenized completely, but, but there are obviously a lot of similarities across the significant parts of it. But uh, yeah, I think it's um, a GDRP is an interesting thing. Again, particularly if you're a B2C company i think that's going to be more relevant if you're a b2b perhaps less um but i know it does uh, surprise and challenge a lot of companies from north america broadly uh, in terms of as they come across that gdrp is an issue um employment regulations are massively different and, and can be challenging as well yeah so we know that you specialize in clean energy and e-mobility and we'd be curious to know if there's any particular reason why you focused on those areas and which clean tech areas you're feeling excited about like which upcoming sort of sectors within clean tech do you think are interesting? Sure. Yeah, no, there, and, and many. And I think that's one of the important things to recognize is clean tech is quite a broad umbrella, really. And I, I'm starting to challenge my own thinking on that uh, in terms of what fits within that umbrella. Mm. But to answer your first part of your question, primarily because I kind of had a solar business for eight years and, uh, and, and grew that quite substantially. So I kind of was more comfortable and more knowledgeable initially in the, uh, in the renewable uh, energy sector. And that made sense for us as, uh, to, to continue to exploit that. And on the back of that, clearly then energy storage and batteries became quite a big issue because that enables uh, obviously a, a greater penetration of renewables into the grid. Mobility kind of came out of nowhere, largely on the strength, of, I think, of a lot of the work that had been done with batteries to reduce cost, increase energy density in batteries. And obviously, that's really evolved the, uh, the mobility marketplace. In, and again, in Scandinavia and Europe, much more so than the US so far, uh, or in North America and so far. So... Um, that then became a, a very active market where people originally, you know, immediately came to us and me to, to help and support them in their transitions and their growth. Mm. Um, and it's phenomenally exciting. Um, but to answer your question, I think there are areas that are really, really instrumental in decarbonizing the world um, that don't get much uh, airtime necessarily. A lot of that around um, buildings and construction and the built environment. Mm-hmm. So smart cities, I think, is certainly an area where there'll be a significant uh, uh, whether already is, but you know, increasing innovation and uh, and business opportunities, um, and then you look at things like uh, agritech and food tech. Is that clean tech? You know, you could argue that it is. It's technology yeah. which enables more sustainable way of living. Um, so you could broadly put that under the clean tech umbrella. Although, uh, again agri-tech you wouldn't necessarily always think of in the same light so i think there are going back to that point of there are so many technologies or areas which are converging and which are codependent yeah because a lot of the sort of vertical farming for example takes advantage of a lot of technologies and renewables and other areas uh, that, that uh, mm-hmm. uh, enable that to happen so um it's it's super exciting and i think that's one of the things i think you kind of have to almost pick your market to specialize in because you could easily chase too many parts of the sector yeah, we've seen that also with some of our portfolio companies, different synergies that have come up, um, I think, especially with hydrogen. Um, I'm not very knowledgeable about the distinction between green, blue, gray hydrogen, um, which I know is very significant. A lot of people don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, feel free also if you have any knowledge to share there. No, I think I think hydrogen's a really interesting one. There's a lot of noise, a lot of investment, a lot of opportunity uh, in green hydrogen. Um, a lot of places where I see that it can really help in the decarbonization. Mm-hmm. Um, on the downside of which, as it stands at the moment, about 98% of high industrial hydrogen is fossil fuel derived without carbon capture and storage. So it's black or dirty primarily. 
Mm-hmm. And you you start to see companies or, or tech people trying to force technologies where perhaps they don't necessarily have a great fit. And um, from an obvious one would be in uh, hydrogen fuel cell vehicles. Uh, I think that ship has sailed, so to speak, in terms of from battery electric vehicles have already sort of starting to dominate that market. Certainly at car level, and increasingly, I think will, will happen at truck level. Um, yeah, the, the hydrogen is a really interesting one because it's such a big opportunity, and a lot of people that really don't understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, face level it seems like a great idea but when you actually go and look at the efficiencies of converting renewables to hydrogen through an electrolyzer for example and then converting back there are a lot of losses and uh, that doesn't necessarily make sense but there are areas where i think in heavy industries where hydrogen can make a real big impact on decarbonization yeah yeah it's a good it's a really good example of how complex altering our energy production is um, and how important it is to really look very closely at what the total cost of any given technology is. And also who's supporting that um, to an extent. And I, I, I believe that we need all businesses to, to, to jump onto the transition. Mm-hmm. But of course, you still get much hydrogen is derived from fossil fuels and therefore mm-hmm. plays quite strongly to the fossil fuel interests. And therefore, I think there's um, a good amount of lobbying and a little bit of smoke and mirrors to, uh, to promote hydrogen where it doesn't necessarily fit. Um, that's just a personal opinion, but I still think there's a lot of fossil fuel companies playing from the tobacco uh, playbook yeah. <laughs> of, of smoke and mirrors and uh, how safe or how clean certain things are. A lot of greenwashing, unfortunately, going on at the moment. That's not unique to hydrogen. That's right there across the, the board, really. Yeah. But that's a challenge because there are so many, going back to your original point, the technologies exist pretty much to, to achieve what we need to achieve. It's just about making sure we're using the right ones in the right place at the right time. Yeah. And, and that's not always straightforward. And as a policymaker, that's a really tough call. Yeah, absolutely. That actually connects to uh, the the next question that I was wanting to ask you, which is, um, I assume that you've seen the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report. Um, I'm curious if you've looked at that report and sort of what your take is broadly. I know it's, what is it, 14,000 studies or something and like (laughs) thousands of pages, but sort of what your take is, if you have one, and then also how you see the relationship between policymakers, industry, and clean tech entrepreneurs advancing in the coming decades, and and maybe more to your point, how do you keep policymakers on track with listening to the right voices that aren't, you know, legacy fossil fuel companies or current fossil fuel companies? Yeah, no, it's a really tough thing. I mean, firstly, the report was both not surprising, unfortunately, but was shocking also, uh, in terms of, uh, I think it was Great timing um, in many respects, that report coming after we've seen the crazy heat waves, mm-hmm. of course, locally to you guys, uh, uh, Siberia. And uh, this week in Italy, we had just under 50 degrees temperature, the highest ever in Europe recorded. We've had massive floods uh, across Europe. So I think people have been acutely aware of this is not normal. And then the report came out really to say that this isn't normal and it's going to get a hell of a lot worse unless we do things a hell of a lot more quickly than we have done. So I think it really is a wake up call that I hope governments will, will will heed and my hope on that is actually going back to the point of consumers is that when the general public who uh, lobby with their votes push harder i think policymakers and governments will have to listen and, and move more quickly than they have done mm-hmm. 
but going back to your point, there is a, a real challenge because I feel sorry to some extent for governments and policymakers. They're not energy experts. They're not energy transition experts. And things move so quickly. And there are so many, as you say, of those voices who are uh, from the status quo trying to protect their interests as best as they can and slow the transition whilst they can adapt or, or, or to, to circumstances. So it's tough. I think entrepreneurs always move at a pace, um, always move quickly. Um, and the prior, you know, the market broadly, the, the, the innovation comes largely from young companies, from startups, from innovative uh, sources. And then often it, it, it butts heads against uh, policy and butts heads against traditional industries. I think that's evolving and changing. Um, and hopefully, going back to the original point, I hope the IPCC report kind of just scares everybody to thinking we, we can't just protect our interests. We've, we've got to make this thing happen. We've got a very limited window of opportunity to do that. Yeah, it is a challenge. It's scary when you're sort of relying on altruism to help make the right things happen. Mm. Yeah. And so what would you see taking that thread forward? What would you see as being next critical steps in boosting clean tech adoption around the world? That's a really big question. Um, But if you could sort of identify like any granular detail around like basic steps that could happen that might make it easier for governments to make those right decisions. Yeah, I think what's really challenged me and I've always done my best to and part of the reason I started my podcast was around that is to to really educate and promote and communicate what is happening mm-hmm. we, we get very much in our sector uh, into a little bit of a clean tech bubble because everybody I speak to every day is it some in some way shape or form engaged in the sector so they're familiar with the technologies they're familiar with what's happening or, or is feasible um, it really drew home to me uh, late last year I was invited to speak at a, a conference on mobility um, but it was not a clean tech conference it was just a broader transportation business uh, conference and the the, the knowledge of what's happening in electrification of mobility was just so non-existent mm. outside of our bubble and you'd think it would be because that's one of the you know vehicles and electric vehicles is one of the more obvious things that you can see today to down the roads mm. but there's a big disconnect between what we know those of us that are in the sector and and what people understand of it outside of the sector and i think if the consumers and the general public were much more aware of the fact that you know renewables aren't massively more expensive necessarily certainly they're um, not only are they beneficial in terms of from a sustainability perspective but they're broadly much better technologies they're just more efficient it's more efficient to generate energy through solar than it is through coal uh, it's more efficient to drive an electric vehicle than it is uh, a petrol or a diesel vehicle and um, they're just better technologies and they're cleaner technologies and i think going back to my point i think a lot of the um, fear uh, and uh, uncertainty and doubt is sown by uh, organizations who would rather slow the transition yeah and then you know i think we're past the point of climate denial change deniers but only just um but we still have a lot of deniers around you know is, is an ev cleaner than a, a a diesel vehicle for example clearly all the evidence says that it is but there's a lot of um dissemination of information that would might you want make you question that so governments do what part what you know what they're voted in to do or by and large you know the lobbying of who's going to elect them is dictates what they're going to do so i think a more educated population um that sees that a lot of these technologies aren't as you know 100 years away there are stuff that exists now and can be implemented right now and that it works and that it's not hugely more expensive and that it's just better um i think that will help drive policy 
because people are looking out the window and seeing crazy weather or mm -hmm. watching their TV and seeing crazy weather and climate uh, things happening around the world. And uh, I think people are scared and, 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 and rightly so. Um, but I think there's just that disconnect between what they're seeing from a, from a climate perspective and what their understanding is of what's possible to achieve. Yeah. And I think there's a bridge there that needs to be gapped, uh, a gap <laughs> needs to be bridged. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think too, at least I've noticed in my, like even just in personal conversations in the last couple of years, especially, there was some pretty significant news came forward, at least in Canada around waste and how little of the recycling that we as consumers have done has actually ever been whistled like a single time. I think it's something like 9% yeah. of things that we put in a recycling bin end up being recycled once. And, yeah. and I think that that shocked a lot of people and recycling. I mean, I'm sure, you know, the sinister um, history of recycling and how it was invented and, and sort of propagated by uh, plastics producers. But I think for a long time, consumers were really told like, you should recycle and that's a good thing for you to do and you can contribute to you know yeah. preserving the natural environment through doing that and i feel that in the last couple of years people are starting to realize that there's really within their own personal lives there's only so much that they can do obviously choosing transport uh, modes and making different choices that's really significant but for us to actually make the changes that need to happen so that we avoid like wide scale global catastrophe um we really need big governmental help and industry help and i think that's a big change no i think that's an interesting point and, and i think the same is happening in energy to an extent but you're quite right you know every every packaging says recyclable uh, or, or you know uh, uh, able to be recycled and all this kind of stuff and it's the same here i remember speaking to my local waste authority and i think it was less than nine percent i think it was four or five percent of stuff that locally to to where i am that was being recycled yeah. and uh, again i think the plastics industry and uh, big brands like coca-cola and mcdonald's were just they came up in a report in europe recently as one of the two biggest propagators of, of trash basically that's in the public domain yeah there's that kind of oh don't worry about it it's recyclable you know it's, don't worry about the problem just put it in your recycle bin and, and you can go about it in your life and uh, i think there's an element of that also in energy you know the energy companies utility customers don't worry about it we're dealing with it you know mm -hmm. um and yet you see the reality still of i saw this week that shell spend more on marketing than they do on green technologies uh in a year so you know it's yeah we i don't want to just bash oil companies or maybe i do actually <laughs> but uh but it's an interesting point that people assume that uh everything's recycled and and so little of it is and of course plastics is a big contributor to uh not just to obviously plastic waste which is uh, devastating in wildlife but also in terms of energy because mm -hmm. uh, making plastics is hugely energy intensive mm -hmm. and of course fossil fuel derived so um we need to stop plastics as much as we can and uh, there are there are a lot of technologies clean tech companies who are inventing you know, bioplastics and other things which are more suitable so um yeah but that comes back to the point i made hopefully and you found that is that an awareness in the public mm -hmm. is when you start to see changes happening in government yeah absolutely so this is sort of our closing out question um but you've now recorded almost 100 podcast episodes is that true yeah i think we're certainly north of 80 yeah yeah, yeah. um so from one podcaster to another what's your favorite part about hosting uh, the leaders in clean tech podcast 
Uh, it's phenomenal fun. Um, we, we sit at the intersection between technology and entrepreneurship. So everybody that I interview on, on the podcast is primarily either a founder, an entrepreneur of a business or, or sometimes VCs that fund them. Mm-hmm. And just hearing their stories, entrepreneurs coming so many different shapes and sizes, uh, come from some different backgrounds. You have people that have been PhDs and you have people that have you know left school and, and found themselves moving from, I don't know, selling cars to, to suddenly creating a, a clean tech company. So the, that's what's really fascinating to me that the stories behind the successes and also the work that goes on we all know about you know the overnight success that that's 10 years in the making Mm -hmm. I think what often people don't realize and I'm sure most of your audience do who are entrepreneurs there's a lot of graft there's a lot of luck sometimes there's a lot of strategy there's a lot of blood sweat and tears and trials and tribulations and you learn more from the mistakes and we've all made many of them and that is the most interesting thing for me is to listen to the stories of entrepreneurs who've been through successes and failures trials and tribulations they're happy to share that because rather the learning goes back out into the marketplace for other companies to follow and benefit from their mistakes and from the successes mm. um I'm a storyteller and I love listening to stories. And um, yeah, that's one of the, the great thing. I've 80 plus times now I've had the chance to speak to some phenomenal CEOs, founders and, and listen to their stories and what's driven them and also how they've managed the successes that they've had. Yeah, for sure. Well, that concludes our podcast for today. Thank you so much, David, for being with us. Thank you. It's been fun. To find out more about David Hunt and keep up with his work, please visit davidhunt.co. That's D-A-B-I-D-H-U-N-T dot C-O. You can find the Leaders in Cleantech podcast at leadersincleantech.com. And for details on Alacrity Canada's Cleantech program and our work supporting Canadian cleantech companies to expand their business in select international markets, visit alacritycleantech.com. Thanks for listening and catch us next time on Cleantech Talk with Alacrity Canada.